Hello, um, my name's Ailish Nimmo and I'm part of the Trainee and Members Committee at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Um, I'm also a renal trainee currently working in Bristol and I'm here today with one of the renal SPRs at Southmead Hospital, Wealth Okuafor, and we're going to talk today a bit about proteinuria and nephrotic syndrome. Um, thanks very much for coming today. Oh yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, I think we chose to talk about this because we get quite a lot of calls to the renal registrar about people who've been picked up as having protein either on a urine dip test or on a formal urine sample which has been sent to the lab for quantification and I think sometimes it can be a bit confusing to know what's normal for proteinuria and what's abnormal. Um, could you maybe just tell me a little bit about what happens in health and what kind of values and figures we're looking at when people call us about proteinuria? All right, yeah, thank you for that question, Elish. I think that's quite key. Um, like you said, we get a lot of questions about proteinuria. So generally speaking, we expect a normal human body to excrete less than 150 milligrams of protein over a 24-hour period. Um, the ideal way of measuring this is through a 24-hour protein collection. However, we're able to quantify this by doing a test that we refer to as a urine protein creatinine ratio test, which sort of correlates the amount of protein in relation to the creatinine you have. And in the UK, generally, this is measured in milligram of protein per millimole of creatinine. Um, so essentially, a value of a UPCR value of less than 15 correlates to about 150 milligrams of uh, protein in, um, in a 24-hour period. The simple reason is that most people excrete roughly about 10 millimoles of creatinine over a 24-hour period. And essentially, we tend to multiply the value in a UPCR by 10 to give you the values in milligrams of 24-hour period. Okay, grand. So less than 15 is normal. Yeah. Um, and what about when it's above 15? So when it's above 15, then you begin to get worried and think about, you know, there's an underlying condition you should be concerned about. So some of the conditions that we know could cause proteinuria would include glomerular diseases. And in that scenario, ideally, you'll expect to have a protein excretion of greater than one gram over a 24-hour period. This will correlate to a UPCR of 100. Okay. Um, some other things that could cause that is what we refer to as overflow proteinuria, where you have other forms of protein um, apart from albumin, such as light chains and myeloma that you could have in the, in, in the, kid, in the urine, as well as um, tubular proteinuria, which you can see in certain infections and tubular incision nephritis, for example. Um, when the protein value is greater than 3,500 milligrams a day, that's 3.5 grams, then that brings us to the interesting concept of nephrotic range proteinuria, which is where we quite we get concerned about. Yeah, grand. So if we say that nephrotic range proteinuria, that's 3.5 grams a day, so that's a protein creatinine ratio of 350. Um, so we hear a lot of people talk about nephrotic range proteinuria and nephrotic syndrome. Are they the same thing? So they are not exactly the same thing. Um, so nephrotic syndrome, as the name says, is basically a syndrome complex made up of certain features that are required to make the diagnosis. And key to that, obviously, is having a protein concentration of greater than 3.5 grams in 24 hours in the urine or a UPCR of 350. Additional to this, you should have presence of fluid retention, such as leg edema, facial edema, generalized body swelling, as well as a low albumin level in the blood, greater than, oh, sorry, less than three grams, less than 30 grams per liter, I would say. Um, certain components that are optional to this will be include a high level of cholesterol, 
um, as well as hypercoagulable state. So this is what makes up nephrotic syndrome. You can't just have what we refer to as nephrotic range proteinuria, which occurs when you have greater than 3.5 grams of protein in your urine without necessarily having any of the other components. Okay, and I suppose there would be different causes between nephrotic range proteinuria and nephrotic syndrome. Yes, there are. So um, nephrotic range proteinuria can occur basically in any glomerular disease and in certain conditions or certain cases may be a prelude to development of nephrotic syndrome. However, like I said, nephrotic syndrome has um, you know, certain components. Um, essentially speaking, we sort of say there are two key types or two key um, areas of classification of nephrotic syndrome. We have the primary cases, which is sort of when you have primary conditions affecting the glomerular, so primary glomerular diseases, which include things like minimal chain disease, your FSGS, which is a focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, membranous nephropathy, and what we used to refer to before as membranoproliferative GN. Um, you could have secondary causes, and that includes things like diabetes, which is probably about the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome. You could also have amyloidosis. Um, you could also have that in autoimmune disease conditions, such as um, systemic lupus erythematosus, yeah, SLE. Okay, yeah. And I suppose other than potentially diabetes, those are conditions that we would diagnose on a kidney biopsy. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they are. Um, however, there are certain blood tests that you can do to sort of help you to begin to find out the key differences between two of them. We've mentioned the urine dip, which is quite key in a diagnosis in terms of the amount of protein you have. Also, obviously, doing a liver function test to determine how much albumin you have, because you definitely need to have a low level of albumin to sort of go along that direction. Other things to do to sort of help you figure out if, um, you know, if what you have is a primary or secondary syndrome is, for example, in the context of a patient having diabetes, a fasting blood sugar, as well as a glycated hemoglobin called alpha clues. Um, you also want to check for blood-borne viruses, such as hepatitis B and C and HIV, because this can also mimic some of the things we mentioned and can cause either FSGS or membranoproliferative GN. You want to check for evidence of autoimmune dysfunction, and that's you want to check for your complements. Um, you could have low complements, either the C3 or the C4 complements, depending on which pathway is activated, um, and that can be seen in conditions like lupus or sometimes in your post-infectious GN. You could also have an autoimmune profile, so we talk about things like the antinuclear antibody ANA, to sort of detect the presence of um, autoimmune conditions. Um, this is just to mention but a few of them. Mm. Obviously, myeloma screen, I forgot to mention that, is quite key in the diagnosis, and you know that includes the benzose protein, the free light chains, and UPEP, ETC. Um, usually, uh, we talked about the biopsy as the main way to make the diagnosis, and that's why, essentially speaking, a lot of times you want to know what the clotting profile is like, and also get a renal ultrasound scan to see what the kidneys are like in, in, our, in the course of walking a patient up mm. with nephrotic syndrome. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, I was also going to ask a little bit about what you might expect somebody's kidney function to be. So we've obviously talked a bit about their urine dip and their urine PCR and what their albumin is. Um, what do you tend to see people's kidney function do or be like if they've got nephrotic syndrome? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, a lot of times people with nephrotic syndrome, especially the primary forms, 
would present with normal kidney function, especially if you catch them at an early phase. But we do know that people with these conditions could also have um, deterioration in kidney function. So if you're young and you're caught early, then you're likely to have normal kidney function. If you're caught probably in the elderly people or at a later stage, then there is a chance that you could have evidence of kidney dysfunction. This could occur in the form of intravascular depletion from the hyperalbuminemia that you have. We also know that proteinuria in itself can cause a lot of fibrosis in the glomeruli, and that can lead to some form of chronic kidney damage down the line. A lot of times, some of the medication used to treat um, you know, nephrotic syndrome, the diuretics, ACE inhibitors, things like that, could also lead to a form of acute kidney injury. And I also, key to remember, um, is in the context of a hypercoagulable state associated with nephrotic syndrome, you could have renal vein thrombosis, which could also lead to deterioration in kidney function. And that's also a diagnosis that is easily missed in a lot of cases. Mm. And in terms of identifying a renal vein thrombosis, I suppose having that in your differential for someone who's got kidney dysfunction, what kind of test would you do to try and identify that? Yeah, I guess the simplest test to do would be a double ultrasound scan, um, but this isn't, I guess the sensitivity isn't too great and probably isn't enough to totally exclude the diagnosis. Um, if you have a high clinical index of suspicion and you may decide whether a contrast scan to sort of delineate the vessels is the right thing to do, bearing in mind the fact that it could cause some degree of acute kidney injury. Yeah. I suppose it's difficult though, isn't it? And it's something that we deal with a lot in kind of kidney medicine in that if they do have a renal vein thrombosis and you can treat that, possibly the risk of contrast is less than what the potential benefit is from finding the diagnosis. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like in all aspects of medicine, the risk-benefit ratio has to be considered. And a lot of times, you know, if you think the benefits outweigh the risk, then you may have to take that step in order to give the patient the right treatment. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, So we've talked a bit about the kind of host of blood tests that you can do to try and help identify a cause. Something else, just in terms of investigations, that I've always found a bit confusing is that we've obviously got the protein-creatinine ratio, which we can send off as a urine test. But we also see a lot of albumin-creatinine ratios, and they're often done in GP practices um, and often in diabetic patients. But I think sometimes it's difficult to understand how the two relate to each other. Um, Do you have any kind of comments about how to think about the two different ratios and how to interpret them? Oh yeah, this is actually something that is quite interesting. So generally speaking, obviously, um, when we talk about the urine protein, this takes in charge or takes view of all the protein content in the urine. That includes the albumin, which is the primary primary component of protein that is um, excreted by the glomeruli and is quite specific, I guess, for glomerular disease. But you think about other things and in other forms of protein that can be found in the urine, which will include the free-like chains, like we mentioned, seen in multiple myeloma, myoglobin, which can be seen in patients with rhabdomyolysis, hemoglobin, which is also a protein, can also be seen. So in certain cases, you may have a discrepancy between the urine-albumin-creatinine ratio and the urine-protein-creatinine ratio, or essentially the amount of albumin in your urine as compared to protein, because you have other forms of protein in the urine apart from albumin. Um, most of the dipstick tests that we have um, detect albumin and find it difficult to detect other components that could be present, like the light chains, for example, and that's why it could be easily missed. So in certain cases, for example, in patients with multiple myeloma, 
you could have a urine albumin creatinine ratio as well and also do a urine protein creatinine ratio and see a wide discrepancy between both values because of the presence of free-like chains in the pro in the urine which could represent extra forms of protein excreted by the kidneys oh, great so i suppose there are certain conditions um where one will be normal and one will be abnormal yeah i think generally speaking yeah i mean um, you could find that in certain cases you know some of the examples i've mentioned myeloma other people who have um, um, tubular proteinuria and that can occur basically in any condition that damages the tubules tubular institutional nephritis, effect of drugs on the tubules sometimes you could have some degree of proteinuria without necessarily having severe or significant albuminuria hmm. okay grand um, and then if we think a little bit about some of the complications that can occur with nephrotic syndrome so um, you mentioned that people would be given some medications. So if they had a lot of edema, for example, then we would give them diuretics to try and get some of the extra fluid off them. In terms of other sort of treatments that you might give someone, sort of thinking about what complications can occur in the context of nephrotic syndrome, um, could you tell me a little bit about what else you're thinking about prescribing these patients or telling them about risks that you want them to look out for? Okay, yeah, so quite rightly you mentioned the risk of um, fluid retention and diuretics. Um, we also talk about giving um, ACE inhibitors or ARBs um, basically to help with proteinuria by reducing glomerular hypertension and these drugs have significant risks so they are very good it could cause some AKA as well as hyperkalemia and that needs to be borne in mind but particular concern in a particular concern in a nephrotic syndrome especially to us as nephrologists is the risk of hypercoagulability because of protein loss in urine, um, you could have loss of clotting factor, examples of which would include antithrombin 3. And what, that, what, make, what happens essentially as a result of this is that you know, there's a high risk of a prothrombotic state. And you have to have a clinical decision or thought in your mind as to whether you think these patients need to be on blood thinners or anticoagulants and weigh the risk-benefit ratio of that. Generally speaking, um, studies have found out that patients with membranous nephropathy who have an albumin level of lower than 20 are at a higher risk of clotting. And I think the evidence is quite safe in that scenario to say these patients should be on anticoagulation. In conditions outside this, the evidence becomes a bit hazy, but I think you should basically take the patient's whole scenario into cognizance and do, you know, try and measure the risk of giving anticoagulation against the risk of bleeding. Um, the KDIGO in trying to give guidance in terms of what to do with anticoagulation in these cases have suggested that if a patient has a raised BMI, a previous history of a clot, a low albumin of less than 20, you could consider and make a decision as to whether you think anticoagulation would be in their best interest. Mm -hmm. Another area of slight controversy, I guess, is what medication do you use? And all the evidence at this point in time will suggest that we use warfarin as the drug of choice to treat these patients. And the DOACs, you could say, um, haven't been extensively studied at this point in time. We know that you have a low albumin level in patients with nephrotic syndrome. The DOACs are highly protein bound. Okay. So that means that you have erratic um, anticoagulation. It's difficult to measure this and you know, reversal of anticoagulation in patients on DOACs is at the moment um, a bit tricky because you still have new drugs coming in in terms of control. In patients on warfarin, medication to use is straightforward. We all know we can use vitamin, vitamin K in that, in that condition. So warfarin is probably the safest drug to use in this scenario. Mm -hmm. Another thing to mention is if you remember that most patients lose their clotting factors in the blood, you could have just find yourself giving 
higher doses of warfarin than you're probably used to in order to get this, you know, get them within a therapeutic range of the INR. And you could have erratic control too. So it's important to keep on measuring the INR because as the patients begin to recover and they begin to retain more protein, and the effect of the warfarin may begin to get more, more potentiated and you need to begin to cut down the dose of warfarin in management of these patients. Ah, great. That's really helpful. And I suppose if the protein level was rising and there were signs that the patient was going into remission from their underlying condition, yeah. would that be a time that you might be able to think about stopping anticoagulation? Yeah, um, so yeah, good question. Is I mean, I, I think it sort of depends on how the patient presents. So a patient who presents with a clot, um, probably the guidance would say you need to give them anticoagulation for at least three months from the point of remission, so as you rule the normal patient when you remove the risk factor for that. If a patient is on prophylactic medication to prevent a clot, I guess when, you, when the patient gets into remission, then you could make that consideration that they don't need to be on anticoagulation anymore mm-hmm. and you can stop the medication at that time. Um, I also like to add on that obviously when the patient is fluid overloaded, this increases their risk of also having clots. And so it's also quite key that we try to offload them to get things going. Great, thank you. And one of the other complications or I suppose abnormalities in blood tests that we see in these patients is that they often have very high cholesterol levels. Do you think about trying to lower their cholesterol specifically? Yeah, so I mean, it's one of those areas where there's no clear evidence, as in a lot of things in renal medicine, in terms of what to do in that scenario. I guess if you have someone who is young in their 20s or 30s and have hypercholesterolemia that can be demonstrated to the secondary to nephrotic syndrome, you could say treating nephrotic syndrome is the same thing as treating the hypercholesterolemia. And as they get into remission, things should begin to get better. If he's an elderly patient, then you could consider whether you want to place them on a statin based on the risk-benefit ratio and the, you know, the score or risk of having complications from high cholesterol. And that would presumably lower the cholesterol, but yeah, it would. But you know, we don't know whether it actually has, has an impact on their clinical outcomes. Yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Great. So. We've mentioned a little bit about treating or um, trying to prevent complications that can occur as a consequence of nephrotic syndrome. Is there anything else specific in terms of the management of these patients? Um, I appreciate that depending what the cause of the nephrotic syndrome is, there will be tr- uh, diagnosis-specific treatments. But in terms of general management for all patients, is there anything else that you would recommend or advise? Yeah, so um, generally speaking, obviously, I think general measures that we can do, um, patients who come with nephrotic syndrome are usually fluid overloaded. Um, in the context of that, salt and fluid restriction to try and help um, you know, reduce how much they have on board would help a lot. It also helps potentiate the effects of, of the diuretics that we tend to give them because obviously if they're not salt and fluid restricting, um, giving diuretics isn't going to do much. It's important to remember that most diuretics, for example, frusamide is highly protein bound, which sort of increases the volume of distribution. And so patients with nephrotic syndrome tend to need a higher dose of these diuretics than you normally would give in otherwise normal people. Mm. Other things like measuring their daily weights to give you an idea of how much fluid they're losing on a daily basis can help you with um, sort of detecting um, how much how much fluid loss is going about, going on. We've talked about use of ACE inhibitors and ARBs as a measure to reduce proteinuria with regular checks of the kidney function to ensure that things aren't going off um, too badly um, as a result of use of the ACE inhibitors and ARBs. Anticoagulation is fine. And like you rightly mentioned, specific therapy is quite important. 
Um, in terms of specific therapy, what I'll say is it can give your neighborhood friendly nephrologist a quick call and they should be able to give you some guidance on that. A lot of times the final diagnosis of nephrotic syndrome will be dependent on what the biopsy shows and at this point in time the treatment can become highly specialized and probably should be better managed by specialists who have an idea of what you're doing. Mm. So I think I always take from this is that we see a lot of people probably coming from for example, um, respiratory wars after they've had a PE or people who have been managed as heart failure originally after presenting with edema. And I think because, as you said, a lot of the time these people can have normal kidney function. I think it's something that doesn't necessarily come to the forefront of your mind straight away, but I suppose just highlights how useful urine dips are. It must be our favourite phrase, yeah. isn't it? Um, yeah, I'm sure every nephrologist you know has talked about doing a urine dip yeah. as part of the management <laughs> of the patient. Yeah. So essentially, a lot of the management can become quite specialised and always, I suppose we're always happy to discuss these patients because they can be quite complex. But it sounds like there are some simple things that can be done immediately to try and help manage the patient. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, a lot of things that we can do, sort of like get the ball rolling in the right direction and makes it easier for the nephrologist to offer guidance in terms of what needs to be done and make a management plan. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, it's my pleasure.